A few weeks ago, a good friend of mine from high school sent me a text message, and he said, hey, uh, I know we haven't gotten together. I haven't seen him in probably five or six years. Our kids were still pretty young at the time. And he said, hey, through work, I managed to get some tickets to the Butler-DePaul game on this date. And he goes, would you like to go? I said, I'm going to try to get these friends of ours to go as well, and we'll go out to eat and, and go catch a basketball game. I said, that sounds fun. Let me check with Tessa. So we worked it out, and last night I went uh, up to Indianapolis and, and met them for the Butler-DePaul game, which was a good time. I uh, hadn't ever been to Hinkle Field House before. That's a great place to watch a basketball game. And I uh, got to see friends I hadn't seen in a long time. And uh, so we park up, I, I go up and they tell me a street where I can park for free and I go park and my buddy comes and picks me up. The rest of our friends are already there trying to reserve a table where we're going to eat. And um, he's driving me over because he's got the parking pass and we're talking and visiting a little bit and we stop at the parking lot and all of a sudden we're getting ready to get out and a song comes on his playlist. I hadn't recognized the first one, didn't know it. But all of a sudden, a song comes on his radio, and I only hear it for just a few short seconds before we get out of the truck. Um, but immediately, a whole bunch of memories start flooding back into my head, and I just start laughing. And even though I only heard this much of the song, the rest of the night, I've, like, despite being at the restaurant where there's music playing, despite being at the ball game where there's music playing, throughout the rest of the evening, I've got this song stuck in my head. It was a song that came out in 1996 by a band called Cake. I'm not necessarily endorsing Cake. I'm just saying this is the name of the song. And the song is called Stick Shifts and Safety Belts. Okay? And this was particularly fun because the lyrics kind of go, Stick Shifts and Safety Belts, Bucket Seats have all got to go. Because when we're riding in the car, it makes my baby seem so far. I need you here with me, not way over in a bucket seat. I need you to be here with me, not way over in a bucket seat. Because when we're riding in my Malibu, it's it's easy to get right next to you. I say, baby, scoot over, please, and then you're right there next to me. Now, as I know all the words of this song, all of them. I'm not singing them for you, but I know all of them. Yeah, I know. I know. Everybody wants a treat this morning. (laughs) Just a little bit. It's a pretty fun song, though. That one's pretty clean. You can check it out. But... uh, but my buddy, one of my other good friends, not this buddy, my other buddy had a our 69 Malibu Classic white and red two-tone car with the bench seats in it. And we used to always pile people into this car and then blare that song with the windows down. And we like so many fun memories flooding back into my head. And I literally heard that song so many times. I don't have, it has been a long time since I heard it. And it has been a long time since I've really sat down and listened to it. But still because of how many memories that are associated with it, because of how many times I've sung it, that song is just ingrained in my brain, right? And therefore, just that small snippet has it running through my head, has me laughing, has me thinking of different moments riding around in this Malibu, riding around in all these different moments of my youth. And it's fun how some music can be that way. I cannot hear a song for years and years and years, and then I, it all of a sudden comes on, and I'm singing right along every word just on autopilot, right? It doesn't take a whole lot of conscious effort. It's amazing how music can connect in our brain, and we just go on autopilot and know everything that's being said and everything that's being done. Plus, it's this amazing time machine that immediately takes us back to a certain point in time, causes us to think about certain people. But... We've been talking as we've been working through this Be Still series about similar kinds of things, how we ourselves get on autopilot. It doesn't matter um, sometimes if we think about 
the words to our prayer. Sometimes if we are asked to pray, we just start praying and all of a sudden words kind of come in on autopilot, right? So a few weeks ago we talked about praying in a way where we actually wait on God and stop talking so that we can truly listen to him and we can hear his voice. We talked about last week being in the word and, and not getting into autopilot, just reading for distance or reading to say that I marked it off my to-do list today, but reading in such a way where we let God's word pour over us and we dwell in his word and truly hear what he has to say. We talked the very first week about Sabbath and how we don't want to just get into the routine and the autopilot of coming in week after week and just attending church because that's what you're supposed to do, but running at full speed and burning the candle at both ends all the rest of the time so that we never stop and we never rest and we never truly gain the rest in God's presence. There's so many different ways we can just click into autopilot and just go because we know the routine, we know what's expected of us, we know what we're supposed to do. And it's funny because sometimes we can get into that same routine here when we actually do gather together. And sometimes we walk in the door and we shake hands, we say hi, we visit, and then we kind of get settled and we know the routine. We know how the service order is going to flow. And even when Nick forgets to stand up and do the announcements because it's his turn to do it. And, you know, I forget sometimes. But we kind of get into this routine where we know that we're going to sing a song, we're going to do announcements, we're going to sing a couple more songs, we're going to do communion, we're going to do this, that, and the other. And worship... This time where we sing and give praises can become an autopilot sort of thing. I'm maybe thinking about lunch. I may be thinking about some other thing. I may be working on some other feelings. I can get into this place where I'm just on autopilot, going through the motions, going through the service. And I wonder sometimes if we were to bring in outsiders to look in every worship center across the country, not just ours, but all over the country on a Sunday morning. Whenever they were to look out, an outsider looking across the crowd and watching us sing, watching us participate in a service, watching us participate in worship, what is it they would think? What is it they would assume about our feelings and our emotions towards God? Because ultimately that's what our worship is about, right? Expressing our love and our gratitude back to God. This time that we gather is about exalting his name and lifting him up. And if there were an outsider's perspective watching all these different congregations and all these places across the country, what would their assumption and their evaluation be about how we feel about God based off what they see? And so this morning we're going to talk about worship and our worship and what is worship and how we worship because it's an important part of this process. It's not just about being still, but as we're filled up with God's presence, as we become overwhelmed by who he is in prayer and in worship and in or not in, but in prayer and in study of his word, eventually that's got to start pouring back out of us. And so this morning we're going to talk about what our worship is and what it looks like. But as we've been doing the last couple weeks, I want to enter into a time of prayer just briefly before we go there. And just as kind of we've been doing, I, I want to let this passage continue to pour over us, and I want us to continue to dwell on this, this passage of Psalm 46. So if you would, just close your eyes and listen. Just let these words sink in, just... Let God speak to your heart through these words, and then we'll have a, a, a short moment of silent prayer before we really dive into text this morning. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice 
the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolation on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Just have a moment of quiet prayer. Father, you are so good to us. Fathers, we've prayed several times already this morning. There are gifts that you have given. There are ways that you provide. There are so many things that we don't deserve. And Father, sometimes it's easy to just keep going through the motions and to settle into autopilot and not really stop and truly think about what it means for those things to be at work in our life, for you to be at work in our life, what it means for us to truly have access to the God who created the heavens and the earth, the very God who formed us in our mother's womb. For us to be able to call out to you and to call on your name and for you to answer us, for you to actually speak into our hearts. And Father, I am hopefully more and more every day able to slow down and be overwhelmed by that truth. And Father, as I'm overwhelmed by that truth, I desire to give you praise and I desire to give you the credit that you're due. And Father, I know no words I could speak, no songs I could sing, nothing I could ever say or do would ever be able to show you enough gratitude for what you've done for us. But Father, it's my heart's desire to never stop giving you praise and to never stop giving you thanks. And so Father, this morning as we gather, as we talk, as we discuss this topic of worship, I pray that again, you would speak to us and you would convict us and you would transform us and you would help us to grow deeper in our walk, not just continuing on in autopilot, singing the words without thinking about them, but moving into deeper relationship with you. We love you so much. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So if we go back to the beginning, which you all are probably tired of me saying, um, go back to the beginning, we look at God creating the heavens and the earth, as I mentioned just a moment ago. God does all these amazing things and puts Adam and Eve in the garden, and the relationship is broken. But God has been walking with them, and we start to say, where is this picture of worship? Where is it that we really start to first see these signs that people are showing gratitude and thanks? And it's really pretty quickly, there's a story in Genesis of... Adam and Eve's children, Cain and Abel. We mentioned it last week, like when I was talking about Bible quizzing, I said Cain killed the cantaloupe, right? That's how we remember that Cain was the older brother who killed the younger brother who also gave fruit as an offering, right? So Cain and Abel are presenting these offerings. We don't know a whole lot about their story except for they have some concept of giving up the first fruits of their labor. Cain giving up some of his harvest, Cain giving up some of the fruits and the vegetables and the the produce that he has grown from his fields, while Abel gives some of his livestock. We know that God is extremely pleased because Abel gives his absolute best. And Cain gives, Cain offers, but it's not his absolute best, and so God is favoring Abel's offering, and that's what makes Cain angry, right? We see this picture in this scene for the very first time of Someone really calling out and expressing to God worship and gratitude and thankfulness by offering up something back to Him. And in the midst of this, the very first encounter we see, there's a picture of both a favorable offering, 
that God receives with gratitude and is overjoyed by, and an offering, an act of worship that is not out of a true place of commitment, a true place of complete surrender, a place of complete trust, and therefore God doesn't show favor on that offering. And it causes a lot of trouble, right? Cain becomes jealous and angry, and God warns him, hey, don't let your anger overcome you, but he still goes out and kills his brother, and we see this horrible, disappointing picture. We continue to kind of go throughout the course of Scripture. We see different moments where offerings are given, different moments where people trust and follow God. We see different things established through the tabernacle and different acts of worship. Here's how we offer thanksgiving offerings that we give up to God as a way of expressing our gratitude. We see this entire giant book of Psalms, David, who would play the heart for the king and then becomes king writing these beautiful songs, some that are short and simple, beautiful praises like we just read in Psalm 46, where others are like the long, vast, big picture that we looked at last week in Psalm 119 that's a declaration of David's love for God's commandments and his precepts and his testimonies. There's all these different pictures we see of different ways that God's people are calling back out to him, saying we are thankful, we are showing gratitude for what you've blessed us with and what you're giving us. Worship stems out of this place where we start to recognize what God is doing in our lives and how he's working in our lives, and therefore pouring that worship back out. I would think about it, I thought about bringing up a big messy water bucket and stuff like that, and I decided you guys could get the visual. Um, but imagine if I had a, a, a big sponge up here, right? And I had a giant pitcher full of water. This was the problem. I wasn't sure this was going to work out, and I was going to make a big mess in the process because it's more likely to happen. But if I had this giant sponge up here, right, and I had a big pitcher of water and I started to pour into it, it's pretty cool. A sponge will catch a lot of stuff, won't it? A sponge is a great tool if you have young kids around the house because somebody's bound to spill something eventually, right? You take that sponge or a towel and start to sop it up, and it does a great job absorbing all of that liquid into itself, but eventually... Eventually, it starts to get so full and so overfilled with water, moisture, whatever it was, milk in our case, a lot of times apple juice, something like that. It gets so full that now you're just starting to smear whatever that moisture was around, right? If I now go over and touch something else with this sponge, it's going to transfer that that liquid, whatever it was I was sopping up, it's going to transfer it over because it's got that point, gotten to that point of absorption where there's no longer any room for the liquid and therefore it starts to overflow. It starts to pour out that liquid because it just can't hold anymore. We've been talking about what it looks like to invest in ourselves through rest in the Sabbath, to invest in ourselves and be still in prayer, and allowing God's presence to be real for us in, in the Word, and, and allowing God to work into us so that we can seek Him and He can reveal Himself to us. And if we continue to allow His presence to overwhelm us, we will become so full and overwhelmed with his presence that we can't help but pour back out. It's like that sponge that's just so overwhelmed with water that the moment you touch it, man, it just starts pouring back out. If we were living a true life of worship where we recognize the true glory and true awe and true amazing picture of who God is, it's just going to be kind of oozing out of us, right? This overwhelming sense of, I can't stand how good my God is. I just can't stand it. I'm overwhelmed to the point I can't take it anymore. There's this amazing picture, speaking of David, in 1 Samuel 6, where the ark has been stolen, the ark of the covenant where God's presence resides, right? God's presence is over this ark. In fact, right before this story takes place, they're bringing the ark back, and we realize how powerful God's presence is because they weren't supposed to touch the ark, 
and they stumble and they fall and the whole thing shifts and there's this guy who reaches out to brace it, to try to catch it. And the man drops dead in this moment trying to brace up the Ark of the Covenant because he came in contact with this thing that holds and kind of is the place, the seat of God's presence in this moment, the symbolic seat of where God's presence resides and he's overwhelmed by it and drops dead in this moment. This is very significant power that resides in God's presence As they bring the ark back in to town, they're a little nervous at that point. David's kind of like, maybe we shouldn't bring it back into town right away. It's kind of a scary thing. It's God's presence is real. God's presence is powerful. God's presence is scary. And so they don't bring it back in all the way at first. But then as they do bring it in to the city and they, they come into the streets, David, the king, has stripped down to his loincloth, basically, his underwear, his undergarments, and is dancing through the streets in overwhelming celebration of the fact that the ark has been returned. God's presence has been returned to them. He realizes the amazing gift of God's power. He's fearful and in awe and in reverence of God's power. So much so that he was a little nervous to bring it in at first. But he's so overwhelmed by the incredible picture of God's presence and God's power that he is just overwhelmed and dancing and celebrating and worshiping in this extremely undignified sort of way. So much so that when he gets back, his wife starts to scold him for how he acted. You're the king. You should get it together. Her father, Saul, was the king at one point. She's been around this this gig and knows that's not how a king asks. And so she gets on him and he says, you know what? God's presence is returned. I will become even more undignified than this if it means worshiping my God and giving him the due praise that he he deserves. And this overwhelming sense of celebration in recognizing God's presence and God's power at work in our lives is what we see. We, We sometimes can get into this autopilot mode where when we say the word worship, To us, it simply means what we do on Sunday mornings when we get together and we play a song and everybody gets up and sings songs. And because we've kind of boiled it down to that sense, we we kind of put a lot of emphasis and focus on that time where we sing as a moment to praise, as a moment to celebrate. We are trying to get into this sense of God's presence before we come to the sermon as we come together. And there's a lot of reasons we do it. There's that same aspect we talked about at communion time. There's this sense of community. All of us being together, lifting up common voices and, and declaring God together in the same way. There's, there's all these different pieces that we're trying to accomplish, but sometimes it gets real easy, especially in a crowd of people where there's lots of distractions and things going on. I'm telling you, I'm the first one to see squirrels in the room. All those little distractions that catch your attention, like, what just happened over there? Um, And we all are kind of that way, and it becomes really challenging for us sometimes to remember that what we're truly trying to accomplish is celebrate God's presence in a way that truly gives Him the credit He's due. And if we were to take a step back and wrestle with that for just a moment, what are the things that we really are thinking and doing, and wrestling with during our times of worship? Are we giving the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who sacrificed his one and only son on our behalf, the God who promises to never leave us or forsake us, the God who promises his spirit will be with us and dwell in us and give us direct contact to him, do we truly recognize his presence in our lives? Are we truly celebrating the amazing gifts he's given? 
Or are we distracted and caught up and allowing that to run on autopilot in the back of our heads while we're thinking about other things? It's funny to me, the thing that is designed in churches sometimes to be the most unifying celebration of who God is, this moment where we truly come together as one body to celebrate with one voice how amazing our God is, is one of the things the enemy uses as one of the most divisive pieces in our services. The peace that causes us to want to go to a different church, the peace that causes us to be mad with people in our church, the peace that causes us to not get along because just like stick shifts and safety belts isn't going to be everybody's cup of tea, and it's really not even mine, it's just sentimental and fun. There are lots of songs in our life that we love, that mean a lot to us. There's this weird, creepy song that I probably wouldn't have picked again, you know, if we were getting married today, but there's this song that Tess and I really liked back then that we danced to at our wedding. Is it the song I would pick again if we're getting married today? No. But does it have a lot of sentimental, emotional connection now? Yeah, absolutely, and I love uh, this week for Valentine's Day, she put up one of the lyrics of that song on this little letter board in our house. It was kind of like, happy Valentine's Day, right? And so there's a way right there because this, wor- this song connects to us. It may not be my favorite song now. There's a lot of other songs I like that much better that I would pick now. But because at that moment that was meaningful to us, that song will forever have a connection to us. And because of our experiences, because of those memories, because of those moments in our life, we all latch onto songs and we latch onto lyrics that were meaningful to us. And because of our culture and how we operate and how we work, sometimes that music that we sing can become this thing that's really meaningful to us personally. And when someone else says, oh, I can't stand that band, they're the worst, we go, wait, no, that's my band. Back off. They're awesome and you should like them as much as I do. That's the way it works. Sadly, as much as we like to have arguments and debates about who's better on the radio, and I'm sure all of us have a different favorite artist that we would look to as our go-to, when it comes to the time here, it's very little to do with the artist. It has very little to do with the composer. It has everything to do with the God in which we sing about, the words and the heart behind what we sing. And, and I recognize that Sometimes we have this desire to hold on to what's meaningful to us because it has meaning to us. And because we feel so strongly about it, it's kind of this thing that causes us to get frustrated. It causes us to get hurt. It causes us to get angry. It causes us to not be focused on the thing God desires us to be focused on because we're so consumed with what we feel is right or what we feel is best or what we feel connects to us the most. And I am in no way, shape, or form making a cause for any side. I grew up in church where I sang all kinds of hymns. I grew up in church where we sang all kinds of other worship songs. I listened to a wide variety. In fact, if you were to pull this phone up right now and look at my iTunes list, it's what we would call quite eclectic. I like it all. But when it comes to worship, I really don't care if I know the words. I really don't care if I've ever heard the song before. All I care about at the end of the day is are those words expressing a beautiful picture of who my God is? And can I be in agreement with those words and celebrate him? Because if I come and say, I can't worship unless I am singing this song or doing this thing, the problem I run into is it's kind of like this week for Valentine's Day or maybe our anniversary or whatever else. You guys know I like board games, right? My wife doesn't. I mean, she kind of does, but she's not really into it. And if I come as a gift, as a way of presenting a gift to her, I say, sweetheart, I got you this board game. It will allow us to spend time together, and we'll have a great time laughing and playing and spending time in each other's presence playing this board game. Is my wife going to enjoy the quality time we get to spend together? Sure. 
maybe. She's going to understand that she loves me. She's going to understand maybe my intentions were good. But is she going to still feel like this gift is more about me than it is about her? When we present our gifts to God, are they more about us or are they more about him? When we present our praises and our offerings to God, is it more about us or is it more about him? Are we allowed... Are we able to separate ourselves from the emotions of what we feel and truly focus and celebrate? And I realize that this, that what I'm saying is not easy to say. But I am saying that if we can't worship out of a place of genuine sincerity that is only about our God and not about our own personal feelings, it is going to be really hard for us to be overwhelmed with his presence in a way like David was that causes us to sing and to shout and to dance. And if we let the tune and the beat and the lyrics that we're unfamiliar with get in the way of celebrating and worshiping our God because of our unfamiliarity, our discomfort, our whatever. And that goes for both directions because I've seen so many people down and bash this song on both sides of the picture. It's not about whose side is right because I honestly don't care and I love all of it across the board. That is not the point. The point is at the end of the day, are we worshiping the God who created us or are we worshiping our own desires and wants? There's this picture in John chapter 4. Jesus meets with this woman this woman at the well, and he's having this conversation with her, and she's a Samaritan woman, by the way, so Jesus isn't supposed to talk to her because he's a good Jew, and she is a dirty Samaritan, and I, 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 we'll talk about that later this year. Like, I don't think we put enough emphasis on how much the Jewish culture despised the Samaritans. This is really not okay. Most good Jews would have gone out of their way to avoid Samaria at all costs, and John 4 says Jesus had to go through Samaria. No, he didn't. Everybody went around it, but Jesus was intentional about where he went, and he encounters this woman who's there at midday. So even amongst the Samaritans, she's not a favored lady. She's not looked upon with a lot of positive perspective. And he's having this conversation with her, and he's asked her to pour some water, and she's really taken aback at the fact that he, a man, is talking to her, a Samaritan woman. He, a Jew, is talking to a Samaritan at all. And they're engaged in this conversation. And it kind of comes to this point where Jesus doesn't call her out on her sins, but he says, go, get, go call your husband. In, in cha- verse 16 of chapter 4, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you were right in saying, you, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, I can only imagine this conversation and what she's feeling at this moment. Oh, man, uh, he apparently knows more about me than I thought he did. Um, and now all of a sudden, here's this Jew kind of confronting me on my own sin and my own stuff. And you ever had that conversation with a person, all of a sudden they find out you're Christian, they've been like cussing the whole conversation. They kind of backpedal and they feel super uncomfortable about what they've said. And they start to kind of try to, well, I used to go to church, and they start to try to give you all that explanation about how that used to happen. I feel like this is how that conversation's going. The woman said to him, sir, I, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on the mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers 
will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such who worship him, or let's see, sorry. Um, For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. When we talk about our worship, we can get really caught up in how I worship, where I worship, what I worship with, all the details of the physical things. Just like the Jews and the Samaritans were caught up in this. Is it on the mountain where Moses was? Is it over here? Psalm 99 talks about that mountain that, where we worship God. There's this cool picture. If you read through Psalm 99, I think that passage is one of the ones listed in your bulletin you can read this week. Psalm 99 talks about praising and worshiping on the mountain. It's kind of that throwback call to that passage you, we say we should worship here. You say Jerusalem is the only place we could worship, that the temple is where God's presence is. And, you know, there's this debate. On, I'm trying to do it right. I'm trying to figure out how to worship. But there's a lot of differing opinions, Jesus. And he says, you don't understand. The time is coming and has now come where none of that stuff is going to matter. We worry about the physical and the tangible and where we have to be when we worship and what kind of offering we have to give and what kind of stuff we have to do to make God happy. And the reality is the time is coming and has now come where true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. I think there's two things to understand about that. That spirit that we talk about, that overflowing of God's spirit being still, that sponge being wrung out. We have to worship out of a place of overflow, that place of outpouring where God's love is poured into us so much that now it's pouring out of us, that we are so filled with his presence that now our worship is the, just that overwhelming, overflowing presence that we just can't contain anymore and it has to get out of us. That spirit overwhelming us and the spirit of God is in us and we are worshiping him in true spirit. But more importantly, we are worshiping him in truth. Where our words have meaning, where our actions have meaning, where everything that's coming out of us is out of a place of true commitment true surrender, true sacrifice to him, where it's no longer about me and my desires and my wants, but it is 110% about him and declaring that he is God no matter what. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 is another one that I can't get away from today without reading. Romans 12 is one of my favorite chapters in all of scripture. There's such an amazing picture of how to that kind of follows all this teaching Paul has been giving to the Romans. And he starts the beginning of 12, which is kind of this transition point. He's been teaching from chapters 1 through 11 all this good theology, all this deep, heavy stuff. And he gets to chapter 12, and he kind of switches gears, and he starts with therefore. Anytime the word therefore shows up, you should kind of figure out this is what we're doing. Like, what's it there for? Like, what are we now talking about? Because of all this, now we're going to do this. And, And he starts to give more practical advice, and Paul says this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Offer your bodies, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. From the very beginning, there was, there was offerings of worship that were given. Cain and Abel, we see this offering, giving of self, giving of something that's valuable and dear to my well-being back over to God. 
It's this giving up of song and praise and emotion and heart. It's recognizing God's presence and saying, I'm willing to give you whatever you ask. And Paul clarifies it and says, true worship. Jesus says it has to be in spirit and in truth, and it won't matter where you are. And Paul helps take it that much further. He says, when you offer your body, your every breath, your every bit of being, everything that you are and everything that you have in every second and every moment of your life, is directed back to God's purposes and God's plan and who he's calling you to be. When he actually starts to reveal himself to you and you realize who he is and you realize what he's called you to do, when you give him yourself completely and offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him, this is your spiritual act of worship. And at the end of the day, it no longer matters whether we come here and sing or not. I think we should still sing. I think there should still be a song in our heart. I think scripture tells us to make a joyful noise. It doesn't mean a pretty song. It means a joyful noise. I think all of these things are important, but the true nature of what worship is for us is our heart completely surrendered to God alone and focused on him. Are we giving him everything we have and laying it all at his feet and is our every bit of being to serve him? Now, I know that none of us, even Paul himself says, Have I reached perfection in all of this? By no means. We all still have daily growing to do. Pick up your cross daily and follow me. It is a learning process. It is a learning curve. And for us to be perfect in that is not to be expected. However, if we are truly seeking God's face and we are truly trying to be still in a way that allows him to reveal himself to us, we have to be extremely intentional about not allowing our preferences or our feelings or our emotions or our other stuff get in the way of us being God's people who worship and declare and lift up his voice together. We cannot let our different perspective, our different um, moments where we want to do things our way, our different moments of trying to take things on our own selves and, and do things our own way and our own autopilot to just kick in and let it just be thoughtless action. We have to come together and collectively lift up a voice where our eyes are completely fixed on him and says, this is all for you. I haven't kept any of it back for myself. I'm not giving this gift to make me feel good. I am completely 100% giving this gift to make you realize that I recognize how amazing and how great you are and that nothing is more worthy of my praise than you. And if we find ourselves in that place of worship before God's feet, day in and day out, not just on Sunday morning, but day in and day out, truly offering our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. It just opens the door that much more for his presence to be real in our lives and for us to continue to be that sponge that is just overflowing. And I know for so many of us, it's our heart's desire to be in that place where we are so overwhelmed with God's presence, we just can't stand it anymore. Maybe not to the point where we go dancing in the streets in our underwear. I get that that may be a barrier for some people. I'm not saying that's what we should strive for. But I do think we should strive for a type of worship that exudes so much joy and so much excitement for who God is that if anyone were to walk through the doors having no experience with who God is, they would realize he is worthy of our praise because of what they see in us. Because they see a heart of celebration that goes, whoa, that guy's kind of crazy. What is he doing? Like they probably did when David walked into the streets. And they go, man, 
I've got to learn more about this God because the way they love each other, the way they pour out their hearts to him, the way they serve and the way that they give of themselves and offer of themselves on a regular basis, man, there's something to this God. Everything they do seems to be about him. I've got to learn more. It's not dancing in our underwear that's the goal. It's people recognizing and realizing that God has significance and value through the way we live our lives. So the worship team is going to come back, and we're going to sing a song that kind of honestly pours out our heart in that same mindset. God, I'm sorry for the ways I've made it about myself. I'm sorry for about the ways that I do things that aren't about you. Amos 5 paints this really scary picture, to be honest. God is speaking through Amos, the prophet, the minor prophet, and he's talking to his people, and his people have become really focused on the do's. They know the routine. They know the they, they've gone on autopilot. They have their worship services. They have their festivals. They have their songs that they sing, and they're doing all these things, but they are not doing the things God called them to do. They're not sacrificing and offering themselves up like he's called them to. And in Amos chapter 5, he says, listen, your festivals, I despise your festivals. Your songs are noisy background noise that mean nothing. If you're not focused on the things I've called you to be focused on, justice, and the things I've told you to care about, all of that stuff is just noise. In the very beginning, God says Abel's offering was favorable and Cain's was not because it didn't come out of a place of spirit and truth. In Amos, he's telling the people, you're not doing what I called you to do, and therefore your offerings and your worship are detestable to me. I do not want God to look at me and say, your worship, your offerings, your sacrifice are detestable to me. I want you to give me your all. And so as we stand this morning, as we pray, as we enter to this time, I simply ask that you wrestle with this homework this week. We've been talking about homework every week and what we're supposed to do. I'm going to encourage you, number one, to find some time to truly worship and surrender your heart, but then wrestle with what are the ways and identify some of the ways I still make it all about me. What are the ways that my offerings and my worship may be detestable to God because of how I've made it about something it was never intended to be? Let's have a word of prayer. Father, I love you. And this morning, I, I, I know and I'm well aware of the fact that, Father, there's still sometimes it's hard for us to present our offerings to you because we get hung up on us. And I am just as guilty as anyone else in this world as sometimes looking around and being focused on things that simply don't matter worrying about what my kids are doing, worrying about what's going to happen later in the service, worrying about all their different things and not able to focus, not able to surrender. In the regular week, not getting focused on what it is you've called me to be and what you've called me to do. And Father, I confess that I am still broken and I need help and I need your presence to continue to build me up in this area. But Father, for each and every one of us in this room, I pray that we would never let ourselves get in the way of pouring out our worship and praise to you. Because, Father, I don't want to stand face to face with you and hear those words like they heard in Amos chapter 5 that my worship and the things that I thought I was doing right were detestable because I missed the point altogether. And so, Father, I pray for each and every one of us that we would seek you with all of our heart, we would be completely surrendered and devoted to you, and that this morning you would receive our bodies, our lives, our every breath, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to you. It's in the name of Jesus I pray these things.